Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, everybody. My name's Lois Alcoholic. I am also a member of the Greenwich Village AA group in New York City. And if you walked into that group, you would probably think it looks like the most off-the-wall group in AA. We have, um, we always have a lot of newcomers. We always have a lot of people at our meetings with, with many, many years of sobriety. We have, um, you know, about half the members are straight, about half are gay. We have at least one transvestite, at least one transsexual, and we have a whole lot of street people who always sit in the back, who really just come for the coffee and the cookies and lots of sugar and lots of milk. And uh, it looks like the most off-the-wall group in AA, but it's as solid as a rock, and I love it, and you're welcome to attend any night that you're there on a Monday, Wednesday, or Friday. I also attend the 468 meeting at the General Service Office every Friday at 11, and you're most welcome to that meeting anytime you're in New York, too. You know, Wednesday night I was standing outside the meeting room. I, I think we were upstairs, but the room was very much like this. And I thought, gee, that's a big crowd for a Wednesday night. And four lovely gals from Kentucky came back and said that they could see from my green ribbon that I... Uh, I'm a speaker here at the conference, and I said, that's right. And they said, and you look so nervous, you must be speaking tonight. <laughs> and that was last Wednesday, so you can imagine how I am now. But I have to tell you, sitting up here, I don't think I've ever spoken in front of this many people, and I've been sitting there telling myself that speaking in front of 3,700 is no different from speaking in front of 37. Don't you believe it? <laughs> Um, but I should be more nervous than I am. I mean, when I um, was in college, I couldn't even make announcements in front of my sorority sisters. I was so self-conscious. And when I was a teacher, it took uh, several martinis for me to do the back-to-school night for the parents. So it's really a miracle for me to be up here. And in all honesty, I am nervous. But looking around the room, I see so many friends uh, and it wasn't all that many years ago that I didn't feel like I had a friend in the world. And I look out here and, gosh, I see so many that I know, past delegates who've been to conferences, people that I've met at forums and roundups and conventions. And uh, it's very easy for me to think in terms of this theme behind me, gratitude is the language of the heart. And my cup runneth over tonight, I think. Uh, it, it's wonderful to be here. I uh, have to say, too, I'm... I'm about as flaky as I can be. Bill's been making a big deal about this not smoking in, in this meeting every night, and it's been four weeks today since I've had a cigarette. And, oh, thank you. I need all the help I can get. A little more than that. I, I deserve a standing ovation for that. <laughs> but no... No. no, seriously, I have been so flaky about this that when Bill makes the announcement, 
I still am so identified as a two-pack-a-day smoker, which I've been for almost 35 years, that I, I keep wanting to, to boo with the smokers <laughs> instead of cheer with the non-smokers. But I want you to know if any of you are as addicted as I am and I have trouble getting through the meeting time, I have gum in five flavors up here. <laughs> and this is not an endorsement. I'm just addicted to having something in my mouth at all times, <laughs> it seems. Now, to get on with it, uh, I do really appreciate being here. And I, I thank Joe... Uh, for inviting me months and months ago. It gave me a lot of time to build up anxiety about it. And Corliss, uh, who's just been wonderful, wonderfully helpful, and Harold, who met me at the airport Wednesday and had to wait for an hour, and, and Don and all the members of the committee. I, I just couldn't feel more welcome. I came to AA with real ego problems. I mean, I felt arrogant one moment and, and you know, just the most worthless thing in the world the next, but Friends like Joe have just saved me in AA. Wednesday night, I was feeling real good about being invited to the 40th Southeast Conference and the 31st Georgia State Conference, and Joe said, you know, we really wanted Bob P. to come, but as you know, his son's getting married this weekend. And then he said, and I thought it'd be great to have Lila, that gal from Alaska, but, but they had her at the Southeast last year in Orlando. So, in other words, you're not getting the first string tonight, folks. And, and people like Joe keep me humble, and I'm grateful for that, Joe. Um, I'm glad that speaking in AA isn't on a competitive basis, because there are some real heavy hitters here this weekend. Um, but I must say that, you know, Bob B. from Minnesota was invited because somebody heard him talk, and he tells a good story, and Johnny from California, and Sally, and Cheryl, and Les, and all the people that you've heard or will be hearing. When you're invited from GSO, it's a little bit different. You're not really invited because you tell such a tremendous story. You're invited because some people on the committee think it's nice to have somebody from the staff come down and meet the folks in the area or the state or the region. And we really do appreciate it, and it, it works both ways. It's nice for us to come down and meet you, and it's nice for you to know the folks that work for you in New York. But believe me, had I known when I was drinking, that I would someday be working in a place where they would fly me in hundreds of miles at considerable expense to tell my story, I would have tried a little harder to develop more of a story. Uh, it's, um, as drinking stories rather run-of-the-mill, I think, uh, I always felt different and like I didn't quite fit in and didn't really belong. And the wonderful thing about coming to AA in meetings is that as we listen to people tell their stories, or at least as I hear people tell their stories, I start to identify, and I start to feel part of instead of apart from. And when I heard Sally talking Wednesday night uh, about growing up in a military family and having difficulty establishing meaningful friendships because she moved around and would just start to make friends, and then the orders would be cut, and they'd be gone, well, that's my story, because I'm an army brat, and and I still have trouble really letting myself get close to you or uh, letting myself love you or letting you love me, because I've said goodbye so many times, and it's painful, and it hurts, and it's easier just to kind of keep you at arm's length. And like Sally, I have developed a, a facade for saying, hi there, how are you, and doing a lot of stuff on the surface that's nice and friendly and feels kind of good, but it's hard for me to really let you 
in or for me to um, become intimate. So I in, in identified a lot with Sally. And then I heard Cheryl speak. Uh, and both my parents were alcoholics. So Cheryl told some of my story. And, and I know the pain of that and how hard it is to grow up in an alcoholic family. And I was with my father when he died of cirrhosis. So I identified with that. Um, then I heard less, and I had a lot of bathroom problems too, and um, and was reminded of that. And and I was reminded of something else that Les shared that was very important to me, and that is that somebody who carried the message to me talked to me when I was drunk. And I don't know what I would have done if somebody had said, "I I will talk to her when she's not drinking." I needed help when I was drinking. Uh, so I identified a lot with that and was glad to be reminded of it. And then Garrett this afternoon talked about graduating from high school in Georgia, and I graduated from Columbus High School in Columbus, Georgia, which is, what, a few miles down the road. And more than that, I identified with Garrett saying, I don't know how I got where I am, except I kept getting into these service jobs and kind of bumbling around till they rotated me on to another job. And that's what happened to me, and here I am. Um, but it's it's wonderful to hear these stories and and to feel part of of something. I um I don't know. I often begin my story by talking about a picture in our family photo album. It's a picture of a little girl about two and a half years old holding a bottle of Coors beer up to her lips, standing between a real good-looking couple, a, a tall, thin guy. Uh, that I thought was about the most handsome man in the world, and a very pretty uh, woman, young woman, my mother, who I used to think looked just like Judy Garland, and they had a lot of other things in common, too. Um, but I, all three of us were standing there with a bottle of beer tilted to our lips, and that may have been my first beer. Uh, I really don't know for sure. I know that when I was about seven, I realized that my parents had a real problem with drinking, both of them. And I seem to realize that they both had a problem about the same time. I don't ever remember thinking daddy had a problem and then mother had a problem. It was just they both had one. And when they drank, they fought. And a little sister had been born after that picture was taken. So so we were a family of four. And by the time I was nine or ten, I had kind of become the family manager and controller in my own eyes. I'm sure I wasn't really, but that's how I felt. And when I was about 12 going on 40, I had my first drunk. Now, I didn't really like the taste of it, but I loved, loved what it did for me. Because I stopped being so somber and serious and started laughing and giggling and feeling like a kid, which is what I wanted to feel like. And when I was 15 at Columbus High School, I had my first blackout. And that was in the 50s. And there wasn't a lot about teenage alcoholism in the uh, newspapers in the 50s, but I would have qualified, I guess. And it's funny, um, of all the high school assemblies I attended in Columbus, the one that stands out most in my mind was the one where two members, two men from Alcoholics Anonymous addressed the school assembly. Now, I still don't think the word alcoholic was really even part of my vocabulary. I thought of my folks as drunks by that time, and I was thoroughly disgusted with their drinking. And I didn't begin to think I had a problem with it, although I had had a blackout and a few little uh, experiences. But I remember that these two men stood up in front of the entire student body and identified themselves as alcoholics. 
And I don't know how active Georgia was as far as having uh, organized PI committees then, but this was clearly a PI effort and a PI work. And these two men, first of all, I was amazed that they would admit they were alcoholics in front of everybody. Secondly, I was amazed that they looked so good. And then I remember that they said, Probably one out of 15 people who drinks becomes alcoholic. Now, that statistic, I think, has gone down or up, whichever way you want to look at it since then. And we now, I think, you hear one out of 10. But I remember thinking, with my luck, I'm going to be that one out of 15. But that was the first impression I had of Alcoholics Anonymous that I can recall. So if you are carrying the message into schools, don't ever feel like your time is wasted because uh, it's a powerful message, I think. I uh, didn't have a very happy high school. I thought uh, you had to be tiny. But the most popular girl in my class was a tiny, tiny little girl named Catherine who was just as sweet and cute as could be. And I saw her as the epitome of the Southern Belle type, and I was the exact opposite. I felt big and awkward and clumsy and stiff and self-conscious and ugly, and I just didn't feel that I fit in. And I didn't drink very much in high school. A few experiences, and almost every time I drank, I got drunk. But I didn't drink much. I went off to college at the University of Colorado, and those became the happiest years I had ever experienced. I suddenly fit in with the crowd. I felt well-liked. I felt attractive. I could dance all of a sudden, and I had also become a daily drinker. Uh, not a daily drunk, but a daily drinker. There wasn't a day that went by that we didn't stop for beer after classes or beer before a study date. You could drink beer in Colorado at uh, age 18 legally, so there were beer parlors right off campus, and we had a wonderful time. And the weekends, um, we partied. It was a party school. That was one of the reasons I had selected the University of Colorado. And uh, I had a wonderful time. Went from Colorado to San Francisco, which is a pretty heavy-hitting city as far as drinking goes. And I uh, was already a daily drinker, but I became a daily wine or martini drinker in San Francisco. And I had gone out there to teach school. Um, I taught for 10 years drinking. That's not easy. I uh, sometimes wonder if I could have even lasted 10 years, though, if I hadn't been in my own self-contained little classroom. I um, set it up by telling the kids the first day of school that Miss Fisher had good days and Miss Fisher had bad days. <laughs> and my justification for that was that life is inconsistent and these little fourth grade or fifth grade boys and girls might as well learn that right off in my classroom. So on Miss Fisher's good days, we did all kinds of creative things in the classroom. And I was a good teacher on those days. And on Miss Fisher's bad days, there would be a board covered with what we called busy work, anything to keep them quiet. You know, write your spelling words 20 times each, your multiplication tables 12 times each. And um, there are pros and cons about whether that's good or bad teaching. <laughs> um, in my book, it's not very good teaching. And I had lots of days like that. I did a lot of geographics during my 20s. And on the surface, I suppose it would have looked like I was leading a very good life. I, I decided San Francisco was too sophisticated. You know, I was miserable inside. But I didn't realize the problem was me or the problem was drinking. 
I didn't fit into San Francisco very well, and I thought it was because the city was too sophisticated for me, and I was just out of place. So I went off to Reno to um, teach school. Now, you laugh, and you, you think I did that because the bars were open 24 hours a day. I went to Reno because it was near mountains, and I was going to ski. What I ended up doing was dealing blackjack on weekends. (laughs) So I sort of feel like I led a double life. You know, by day I was kind of a prim, proper, professional-type school teacher. Weekends I dealt blackjack at Harrah's Club at Lake Tahoe. And uh, weeknights, you know, that uh, Mr. Goodbar book hadn't been written yet, but my life was kind of like that. It just didn't make any sense, but it's it's an alcoholic woman's kind of life. I went from Reno to Europe to teach for the Army. That, as far as my drinking goes, was like jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. Now, when I got to Europe, I thought my drinking wouldn't be too bad because I planned to do a lot of traveling, uh, do the museums, learn German. I was going to learn German, but happy hour and German class were on the same evening. <laughs> and I just never got to German. I'd stop by the officer's club for happy hour, and you could buy Beck's beer for a nickel a bottle. So, you know, you could be just 20, 20 bottles of beer for a dollar. Now, who's going to pass that up? And uh, I just I just didn't make it to German class. Came back from Europe, went back to Lake Tahoe. Um, again, I was going to ski at Lake Tahoe. I... Um, I started getting into some real trouble about that time, too, because the clubs were open all night. I uh, drove my car off the road and ended up in the Zephyr Cove, Nevada uh, jail. I wasn't booked for drunk driving because I lied easily, and I convinced the the uh, deputy sheriff that I had never been that drunk in my life and that I was a school teacher and it would ruin my career, and he let me just sit in the cell until I was sober enough to drive home when they pulled my car out of a snowbank. But that was kind of the way things And there was a time when I just got drunk on weekends, and then I was realizing it wasn't just weekends. It was Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday afternoon, and then pretty soon it was Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday afternoon. And then I started realizing, God, I was drunk every single night last week, and I didn't even go out half those nights, and what's happening to me? And in the meantime, my dad died of cirrhosis, and I went home. I was with him when he died, got home. Uh, from the hospital at 2.30 in the morning and woke my mother up to tell her that Daddy had died. And we pulled out a gallon of wine to plan the funeral and decided we had to have a 10 o'clock in the morning funeral so that Mother would be sober enough to get there. Now, I wasn't worried about whether I'd get there or not. Somehow, I was still able to control the starting time of my drinking, and that deluded me a lot. I don't know if any of you know what I mean, but I kind of by then knew that once I drank... I didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, I never, as somebody else has said at this conference, I never drank to get drunk or set out to get drunk. But I never knew for sure what was going to happen. Somehow I was able to control that starting time. That was one of the reasons I knew I was not an alcoholic, because I could still control the starting time. But my mother had, had passed that stage. You know, it's a progressive illness, and she had about 20 years on me. So we planned Daddy's funeral with a jug of wine on the coffee table. There were so few friends. You know, alcoholism is a terrible disease. There were so few friends that we hired pallbearers. The biggest bouquet at my father's funeral was from the liquor store. Um, it was it was 
kind of heartbreaking to me. And this, this was our family. And my sister also has a problem. So it was four out of four of us. And if I have a message at all, it's that I'm the only one making it sober. My dad died before ever trying AA. My mother has been to AA, and she just doesn't like it, just won't give herself to it. The same with my sister. So my message is, I, I for some reason, was open-minded enough and willing enough to do anything, whether I liked it or not. And uh, I feel, I don't know why, I feel very grateful for that, needless to say. Um, in 1969, my best friend went to AA. I felt so sorry for her, I couldn't believe it. Uh, what troubled me more than anything was that I drank a lot more than she did. And I thought, if she thinks she's alcoholic, what does that make me? I went to a few meetings to uh, kind of be supportive and to check it out for Mother. Now, you all were wonderful. You told me to keep coming and to bring my mother with me if I'd like. And I told you Mother lived a thousand miles away, and you said, that's okay, you keep coming, and here's some literature for you to send to your mother. Um, I listened to, I remember the first meeting well. I wasn't totally sober, but I really wasn't drunk. And I listened for all the ways I wouldn't have to identify. The man was talking about blackouts that lasted a couple of weeks. And I thought, gee, mine just lasts a few hours. I guess I'm okay. And he talked about waking up in strange cities sometimes. And I thought, I wake up in strange beds, but I always stay in town. So I'm all right there. Um, I did not want to identify, needless to say. I was just visiting at this point, so I hadn't begun to give up drinking, and I had a drunk driving accident one night. Now, it was hard for me to understand how a teacher, it, the party was really in my honor because I was the um, president-elect of my community's teaching association. Uh, and so it was a cocktail party in my honor, and I enjoyed it so much I couldn't drive home. And I really uh, banged myself up very well, multiple fractures, ended up in the hospital for almost a month, was mortified and humiliated because everybody knew that I was just dead drunk when they brought me into the hospital. I was so drunk they couldn't operate for 12 hours because there was too much alcohol in my system. Now, when you're trying to be a prim, proper school teacher by day and president of the Teachers Association and an assistant school superintendent I know in the audience is giggling, <laughs> but when you're trying to be all those things, it is embarrassing to be taken into San Francisco General Hospital at 3 in the morning, too drunk to be operated on, having just totaled your car. So I swore I would never drink again to myself if I lived through the surgery and so forth and if I saved my arm. And I was absolutely immobile, both legs in casts, one arm in traction, one arm in a massive cast. They serve wine in California hospitals. And I was having wine held to my lips with a straw in my mouth two days after surgery. Can you imagine? That's insanity. And when I got my legs out of the cast, they were just cut. I was going off to the in the hallway, stealing wine off people's trays and lining them up by my bed. Now, that's embarrassing, too. Um, but that, I was an alcoholic. Made good sense to me. 
I decided to join AA at the most inopportune time. It was a week before Christmas in 1970. Now, if there's anybody here just kind of uh, testing the water and you're not sure, do not join AA a week before Christmas. It's the worst possible time because within 12 hours you're really thinking, what am I going to do New Year's Eve? Uh, even my teetotaling grandmothers drink on Christmas, you know, have a little eggnog or something. And I am being facetious because there's no wrong time to join if you need it. And I'm sure you know I, I know that or I mean that. But my first meeting uh, was very, very important to me. It was a beginner's meeting in San Francisco. And I had wept all afternoon because I couldn't think of anything worse than joining AA. I was 33 years old. I saw it as curtains, the straight and narrow for the rest of my life, Dullsville, boredom, you name it if it's negative, and that's how I was feeling about the whole proposition. Now, I had gone to San Francisco trying to be, you know, with the attitude of every night, Saturday night, and Saturday night's New Year's Eve, and let's have a party. And it was Christmas 1970, and the only invitation I had was to my faculty Christmas party, and I had to be invited because I was a member of the faculty. So, you know, even my heavy-hitting friends, my hard-drinking friends, weren't inviting me to their parties anymore. And I didn't want to go to the faculty party because the year before, I had become very drunk, and my principal was a teetotaler, and so was his wife. And near the end of the party, in a very drunken state, I had proposed a toast to the greatest principal who ever lived, and I'll even propose a toast to his wife, Miss Grimlips. So I didn't want to go to the faculty party. I told you it wasn't very dramatic. I mean, I'd much rather be saying I was in jail 14 times in 62 hospitals. It was just steady deterioration. Uh, and embarrassment and humiliation and hating myself, you know, day after day, week after week, month after month, and year after year. Um, anyhow, I uh, it, it was a pretty grim Christmas, and I did finally get sort of a second-hand invitation to a party. Now, this may not, I mean, the fact that I had lost all my friends may not sound like much if you are thinking about losing family and jobs, but I had no family to lose. Uh, I would have lost a job if I had been doing anything but teaching. But I avoided uh, the principal and parents and people like that. Uh, my kids knew I had a problem, though. I, I uh, had a child in my class. And this was years before I came to AA, whose mother was the neighborhood drunk. And we used to, as good teachers, sit around and talk about this child with grave concern and what we were, were we going to do. And I'll never forget this child coming up to my desk saying, you know, Miss Fisher, you smell just like my mom does all the time. And I said, we probably wear the same perfume, honey. <laughs> but I knew, uh, and you know that I knew. Anyway, I, I went to this party that I had been invited to in a second-hand kind of way. And I, by that time, was at that stage where I was having personality changes. I had been a pretty congenial fun-loving party girl, drunk for the most part. But uh, the personality changes were happening now, and I think it was really that I hated myself so much that my hostility was coming out all over you. And I told a lot of people at this party off, people I had never even seen before, so I had no reason to hate them, but I did. I hated everybody. And I passed out and was carried off to the guest bedroom, and I woke up the next morning and was 
again embarrassed, humiliated, apologized, went home. Swore I would uh, not drink like that anymore. And my friend who had joined AA the previous year heard about the party and my behavior. She talked to me about my drinking, and I said, if you think I'm going to join that phony Coke and Cookie Club you belong to, you have another thought coming. And she said, oh, no, Lois, I hope you don't come to AA, because if you do, a lot of really caring, well-meaning people will just break their backs trying to help you, and they'll be wasting their time because you can't be honest with yourself. You wouldn't be able to get sober. Well, that's all I needed to hear. (laughs) And you know what I did. I decided Wednesday night that I was going to join AA and show her who could or couldn't get sober. And I called somebody else I knew in AA, Tom. He had been sober three months. And Tom said he'd take me to the beginner's meeting Thursday night. And so I got very, very drunk that night because I wasn't in AA yet. And nobody ever has to try to convince me about step two and the insanity of this disease because I remember I was drinking Gallo Burgundy and you would have thought it was the finest French wine ever made and I was pouring it in the glass and holding it up to the light and talking to it. All, you know, it was just the Gallo Burgundy and me and, you know, you are the most wonderful friend I've ever had. I hate to leave you. I won't be gone long. I'll be back. Um, you're beautiful. I love your color. I mean, you know, on and on. Social drinkers don't do that. <laughs> well, I um, went to this beginner's meeting on Thursday night, and I, who had always felt different from and kind of out of it, felt unbelievably, incredibly at home, although I had a horrendous hangover. And I can't tell you how much it troubled me to feel so at home with all these losers in AA. I thought, wouldn't you know it? You have never felt like you fit in anywhere, and you feel like you fit in beautifully tonight. What got to me, of course, was the fellowship and the laughter and the love and the the humor and the warmth and the friendliness. I went to another meeting the next night. Now, I was a very willful alcoholic, and the next night I went to a meeting at 10.30 because I had already made a plan uh, to have dinner with a friend this second night of sobriety, and AA was not going to interfere with my social life. So I had dinner with a friend, and then I was going to a meeting at 10.30 at the Industrial Club, which was in a very raunchy part of San Francisco, our Skid Row part. It was an old saloon, and I walked into this meeting. Well, I walked to that club in this Skid Row part of town, tears streaming down my face, tears of self-pity, thinking it's the 18th of December, everybody I know is at a Christmas party somewhere. This is absolutely dreadful, and I didn't drink in neighborhoods like this, and here I am going to AA in a neighborhood like this. And I walked into this club, and there were a lot of winos sitting up at the bar just trying to stay in out of the rain that night. Uh, they couldn't order a drink in this club, of course, but, but they were welcome to come in and sit there. And there was a woman, very drunk. I later, I mean, I realized or found out she was an AA member on a slip, and she was panhandling. And I was appalled and and shocked by this and feeling very righteous. And I remember she was going from person to person saying, can't you just spare a buck? And uh, she stood up in front of everybody and dropped her slacks and pulled off her sweater and she was stark naked. 
And I was very offended by this, needless to say. I'd never seen it at any of my drunken parties. And she said, doesn't anybody want it just for a buck? And what really impressed me was that the AA men and women in that room just rushed up to help her, to help her get her clothes back together. And I saw such love. Um, now, I was thinking, maybe I'm not an alcoholic because I've never done anything like that, and I certainly wouldn't. But I think when we're ready to be here, we can get the message in all kinds of ways. And one of the things that came through to me that night was that I haven't done anything like that yet, but who knows 10 years from now what I might do for a drink, or 10 months from now. Went to a meeting in that place that night, and um, I remember thinking that they were the wisest people I had ever heard. And, and I remember a woman who said, this is my first Christmas out of the joint in seven years. And I'm with my kid, and he copped a tree off a lot, so we're going to have a real family Christmas. <laughs> and I thought, I have so much more going for me. I still have a teaching position. I have a brand new car that the insurance company paid because I, I totaled my other one in a drunk driving accident. But I have so much going for me. And this woman has so little going for her. But I could hear the gratitude. You know, she was sober. Her kid had topped a Christmas tree, and they were having a happy Christmas. And one woman said, I'm gay and I'm an alcoholic. And I thought, my God, they tell everything in here. And then I, later I found out her name was gay. <laughs> but I sometimes hear people say, you know, that they want a physics professor to 12-step a, a geometry teacher or, or whatever. And, you know, I think when you're ready, you're ready. And I was certainly ready that night. By the next night, my third night in AA, I wasn't so ready. I was feeling better. I was young. It didn't take me long to get my physical health back. I'd been sober, what, maybe 72 hours at that point. And I started wondering if I was really an alcoholic. And I found a dress in the closet that didn't have the hem hanging out nor the zipper broken. It wasn't too dirty. And I put it on, and I thought I looked pretty good. And off to the San Francisco Young People's Group I went. And as I said, already thinking, I feel so well, I'm probably not alcoholic after all. And as I said, it's people like Joe and a, another friend in San Francisco who've helped me so much because this fellow that I met that night, and his name was Tom, came up to me and said, uh, you're new, aren't you? And I wondered how he could tell, but I said, yes, this is my third night in AA. And he said, well, honey, stick around and your eyes will clear up, your skin will get better, and you'll lose some of that weight. <laughs> So, I flew to Denver my fourth day, <laughs> my fourth day in AA. Now, I was going to Denver to spend Christmas with my alcoholic mother and my grandmother, who I was very, very close to. And everybody in San Francisco AA said, don't go. You will never stay sober under those circumstances. You're too new. And I went anyway. And standing in the waiting area at the airport, and I'll never forget this, you know, it was the holidays, so the airport was packed. Uh, just being at the airport was an anchor for me to have a drink. I always had drinks at the airport. And I was standing around in the waiting area, and I thought, statistically, there have to be other alcoholics in this crowd. And I thought, statistically, there even has to be at least one other AA member. And I didn't know about that 
if you're a friend of Bill W. Trick yet, you know, it was only my fourth day in AA. So I got on the plane, dying for a drink, and down comes the bar cart, and I was hanging on, you know, with white knuckles, boring the poor guy next to me to death, telling him all about how I was in AA and didn't drink. He could have cared less. And I ordered a 7-Up, and I went to a meeting at the York Street Club in Denver the next night. And in walked the other AA member from the plane. And it was the flight attendant who had been on the plane, who had been pushing that bar cart. Uh, her name's Ann. She's still sober. And I told her how much I'd uh, like to have talked to her. And she had only been sober a month at the time. And she said, oh, I could have used a talk too. But, you know, the message to me from that was no matter where I go, whether I know them or not, there are going to be other people doing what I'm trying to do. Well, I would like to say that everything was wonderful and I... Uh, was so grateful for my sobriety that I never had another drink. But that's not how it was. I had a gold star mentality. And in the beginning, it was just fine because I was getting lots of pats on the back and lots of rewards. But I came into AA as an agnostic, uh, probably really as an atheist, but I didn't have the courage to, to say that because I wasn't that sure. So I had no spiritual program. And when people would talk about God and things of a spiritual nature in meetings, I just tuned out and made grocery lists or thought about what I was going to do next weekend and paid no attention at all. And I uh, was active in a way that everybody could see. I, you know, There was just no place too far for me to go on a 12-step call. And if uh, the inner group needed somebody to do teleservice on weekends or holidays, I volunteered, but let everybody know what I was doing. Uh, I didn't understand the, the uh, anonymity tradition at all or what that was all about. And I didn't work steps. I tried to in the beginning, but when I got to steps six and seven, I didn't have any character defects or shortcomings, so it was hard to keep going. <laughs> and um, I had a sponsor, but she didn't know as much as I did, and I always said, yes, but... and. Um, after I'd been, I could do things all right on the surface, though, and uh, so I was invited to speak a lot at meetings. Uh, I read the big book a lot so I could quote it at meetings, and I remember driving to meetings, singing, there's no business like show business, if I was the speaker, and um, <laughs> you get the idea, I'm sure. And when I had been sober about a year and a half, I was speaking at the San Francisco All Groups meeting. And I remember sitting up on, at the dais thinking, my God, you've only been in AA a year and a half and you're already speaking here. You have come a long way, baby. You are doing terrific. And no credit to any of the people in the fellowship who had helped me. No credit to God. I didn't believe in God. Uh, I was drunk four months later, five months later. And I was the only person surprised. Um, I couldn't believe <laughs> everybody else had just been counting the days, just uh, waiting for it. I also want to say I had been smoking marijuana that summer. Uh, I say it reluctantly because if anybody here has been smoking grass, I don't want to give you the impression that you have to get drunk too. I smoked grass and my sobriety went down the tube. Uh, I did not smoke grass for social reasons, although that's what I was telling myself. Uh, I smoked it for the same reason I drank, to get stoned and to be out of it. And I, um, my drunk lasted one night. It was in October of 1972. And it convinced me beyond a shadow of a doubt 
that I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I had started wondering and questioning that. I would go to meetings and I'd start thinking, I may be a little alcoholic, but not as alcoholic as the rest of you. And I was, I was just bouncing back so fast that I really did question whether I belonged in this program. And the one, the, the night I got drunk, my sponsor came over and, and, uh, sober, I'm a pretty decent person. She came over that night and I told her, and I, uh, this is still hard for me to even think about, but I told her that her husband didn't love her, that he had married her just for her money, that everybody knew that. And it was probably true, and they're no longer married, but the point is, I'll never forget the hurt, the hurt in her eyes. Um, and I wouldn't have done that had I not been drinking. And then I drove to the Golden Gate Bridge to jump off and, uh, created a lot of attention that way and uh, and then I drove on into Marin County and I was uh, very drunk and I went to my friend Frankie's house in the middle of the night and knocked on the door and when she came to the door we had never known each other drinking we were AA friends I said Frankie I've been drinking and I'm drunk and instead of saying oh go away Lois and I'll talk to you when you're not drinking anymore and you can hear what I have to say she held out her arms and said oh Lois come in and she embraced me and talked to me for a long time. And I don't remember the words. I don't remember a lot of what she said. But I sure remember the feeling of being wanted, of being loved, and of somebody caring about me. And I got back to AA the next night, and things were just different after that. I think when I when I had come into AA the first time, it was to please people and get a lot of people off my back. When I came in the second time after the one night out, it was because I clearly knew that life was better sober. So my approach had to be very different. And one of the things that was very different is that I became active in a way that was uh, not so showy, not so noticeable. I became active in general service. Now, being GSR was not the choice job in my home group in San Francisco. And, um, and it taught me an awful lot. It taught me about how to get along with people that I wouldn't have even known. It, it taught me about how to get along when I wasn't getting my way in something. Um, it um, wasn't just service, though. I had to develop a spiritual program or I wasn't going to stay sober, and I knew it, because my first couple of years had been so peaks and valleys, so many ups and downs, and I just didn't know how to get a spiritual program. I mean, I was a how-to junkie. I'd read every how-to book written, I think, how to be your own best friend, and I'm okay, you're okay, and you name it. I had read it, but I really didn't know about a book that told you how to be spiritual when you just didn't feel the least bit spiritual. And then I started doing just what I had uh, done when I was new and wanted to learn how to stay away from a drink, and I started talking to people who had what I wanted in, in terms of quality of life and serenity and and calmness and peace in their lives. And I started doing the things that they suggested, and sometimes I felt like it was silly, and sometimes I sort of had a tongue-in-cheek attitude about it, but I started feeling better, and things started working better in my life, and, and things just got better. And it's funny, because I can remember, by this time I had finished a master's degree thanks to sobriety, and uh, had gone on and had an administrative credential, and I had a lot of options in the field of education, but I wasn't sure that's where I wanted to be. And I remember driving back into the city one day, thinking, I don't know if this is what I want to do, 
but life is really okay. In other words, for the first time in my life, I was practicing acceptance and not trying so hard to force things to happen in my life. And uh, life was just going along very well. And then along came a lady from the general service office in New York, who I must say just changed my life profoundly, and she's here tonight, and I'm talking about my dear friend Cora Louise. But she came out on a staff trip, and I was very active in service in the San Francisco area. And after her visit, a couple of years after her visit, I got a letter, or I guess it wasn't a couple of years, about a year and a half later, I got a letter asking if I had ever considered working at the general service office in New York. And it had never entered my mind and uh, incidentally, I can tell from the nature of some of the letters we get that there are some people who sort of get the idea that we have some authority and power that we just don't have. I mean, I get that idea because you write and tell us we should send somebody down to check on the such-and-such such group that's not doing anything right. <laughs> and I want to tell you, you're giving us power <laughs> that we don't have. You've got it backwards. We work for you, and, and, and it's your group, and, and you're the ones, you're the bosses, not us. But I, I uh, at first said no, I really wasn't interested in working in New York because I loved living in San Francisco. But somewhere along the line, I had done the third step and made a decision about turning my will in life over to the care of God as I understood him. And, and once I had said no, I didn't feel quite right about it, and I thought I wasn't seeking this. And it's just kind of come my way, and I'll probably go to my grave wondering what it would have been like to go to New York if I don't go see what this is all about. And as things have turned out, I did go to New York, and I went back to interview in April of 1977. I only knew Coral Louise and a man named Bob Hitchens, who also worked there at the time, and I didn't know them very well at all. And I remember arriving on a Sunday afternoon and ending up down in Greenwich Village and suddenly feeling very lost and insecure and wondering, what in the world am I doing in this noisy, dirty, busy city? And I wandered into a little coffee house in Greenwich Village and sat down next to three guys and couldn't help but hear them because the tables were so close together. And I was feeling very lonely and noticing everybody in this coffee house was with a friend and feeling like I could move here and never know anybody in New York like they know each other because I'm 40 years old and that's too old to make moves like this. And I heard these two guys say to the third, how long since your last drink? Do you have a home group? Do you have a sponsor? And I started talking to them and they said, you're in the AA hangout of Greenwich Village. And all the people in here just left the Perry Street Sunday afternoon workshop. <laughs> And that kind of blew my mind. And so I did decide that if I was offered the job, I would take it and that moving to New York would be all right because AA is there. And and it's been terrific working at GSO. It's been uh, poignant. Uh, I was asked to tell the story that I have to, I, I told a few times about Probably one of the most poignant things I've experienced at GSO, and I'm aware of the time, so I'll, I'll just make this brief. But last summer, we uh, a year ago, we received a letter from a Marine in Beirut named Johnny, and it started off very official and formal. To whom it may concern, and would we please send him resources and a catalog because he wanted to start an AA group there. 
and he would very much appreciate our help, and he signed it, you know, full signature and rank and serial number and the whole bit. And the staff member on overseas, who was Phyllis Mazbach, at the time wrote back, Dear Johnny, it was great to hear you, and of course we'll send you a literature catalog. In fact, we're going to send you a whole lot of literature, and we're glad to hear you're starting a group, and, and uh, you know, let us know how things are going. Well, to make this short, Johnny wrote back and forth, and so well, actually, I don't know that I can get a group started because I'm the only AA member I know of right now, but there are a lot of people who need some help, and I'm trying. And all of his letters, incidentally, were published in the April grapevine. It really is a nice story of how AA gets started in a country. To make a long story short, I started writing to Johnny because I was handling the loner's assignment at the time. And I said, Johnny, since there aren't any other... AA's there, wouldn't you like to be a loner? And he wrote back, thanks, but no thanks, because I'm going to get a group going here. And uh, and he did. He called it the Peacekeeping Group. And it met at the airport in Beirut, that Marine headquarters. And uh, the last time he wrote to us was September, and there were eight people in the group at that point. A couple of civilians from um, the city and then Marines. And Johnny uh, wrote about how excited he was about coming back to the States in November, but they were sure the peacekeeping group would keep going because the Marines that would replace them surely would uh, include some AA members. And, and he sent us the peacekeeping emblem. And, and uh, Johnny didn't make it back. He was one of the ones killed in the bombing in October. And um, when I saw his name on the casualty list in the New York Times, I felt like I had lost a son. Um, I had never met him. I found out a lot about him afterwards. Found out both of his parents were alcoholic. Found out that he has a brother, sober, that he 12-stepped. And he had been sober a little over a year when he went to Beirut. as just a kid. But uh, some of the survivors, civilian survivors, are determined to keep that meeting going. And to bring you up to date, those of you who know this story, uh, we have tried several times to get literature to them, and it keeps getting returned because of the political problems in the country. But that's one of the things that your contributions and your help make possible. Um, someday there will be a lot of groups in Lebanon. I will always think of Johnny Olson as the founder of AA over there. Uh, but but you, you make that possible. And then there are funny things that happen, too, and... and just one of the funny things happened at the conference last year. We are very human at GSO. I say that because sometimes you, you treat us like we work in some sort of ivory tower, and I want you to know that nobody there is Miss Super AA, and we have all have a long, long way to go. But Sally, the delegate who spoke Wednesday night, said, you people on the staff all get along so well together. She said, that just amazes me. And she said, is that for real or just a show you put on when the delegates are here for the conference? <laughs> and I said, well, it's pretty much for real. We have our little disagreements now and then, but generally we like each other a lot and work pretty well together. Now, it was near the end of the conference and we were tired, but it wasn't two hours later that another staff member and I were just going at it tooth and nail <laughs> over a disagreement we had about a discussion on the conference floor, and I thought, oh, I hope Sally didn't see that. But um, but that's the way it is, and some days it's, it's very exciting, like, it's very exciting to be part of planning the 50th international, the 50th anniversary uh, convention in Montreal, and a lot of you have asked about that, and I sure hope you all come. Uh, I called the office this afternoon just to be sure about this uh, before I announce it in front of 
3,000 people, but you should have your registrations by the middle of, or the, the information about registration by the middle of September. It's going out on a staggered basis. It'll be mailed overseas before it's mailed to the New York groups. In other words, the goal is to get, is for everyone to arrive, receive their information on approximately the same day. But, um, it's wonderful. I never take it for granted. Um, I, I don't think a day has ever gone by that I haven't felt grateful for working there. And uh, and to, to sum it up, I had my 10th anniversary in Mexico working on the World Service meeting. That was a couple of years ago. And somebody said, what do you want to do to celebrate? And I said, I'd like to just go to an AA meeting tonight. But the World Service meeting sessions went till 9.30 or so, and I didn't know if that would be possible. And one of the delegates from Mexico said, well, I'll find out about the nearest group and we'll be in touch. And there was a group near the town where we were, uh, which was San Juan del Rio. And, and he got in touch with the members of the group and they were delighted that some, the, some of us from the conference would come. And, and uh, we said, but what time does the group meet? And they said, never mind, it doesn't matter, we'll be there when you get there. And we said, but there are quite a few of us, how will we get there? Don't worry, we'll have cars there. We walked out, and they had cars lined up. I don't know how they managed to accommodate us, but they accommodated all of us. And we got to the town. We drove a long way to get there, and the whole town was asleep except for the lights on in this little old building. And we walked up, and the members of the group had just been sitting there for hours waiting for us to get there so that we could have a meeting. And that's where I celebrated my 10th anniversary. So I do know about gratitude being the language of the heart because I didn't understand half of what they were saying, but I sure felt the love. And I sure do love you all, and thank you so much. Good night. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.